today. I'm Bob Carr, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the Zachary Podcast. Today I'm joined by John Keane, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney. He's a leading thinker about democracy, director and co-founder of the Sydney Democracy Network, the author of many books about the subject, including the critically acclaimed The Life and Death of Democracy in 2009. His new book, though, When Trees Fall, Monkeys Scatter, Rethinking Democracy in China, is a bold one and very timely. It challenges the assumption that China's political system is an authoritarian dictatorship. It argues that China enjoys surprising levels of public support and resilience in the face of serious economic, environmental and social problems. It's more durable than many outside observers contend. John, welcome to the program. Now, we're going to get into trouble in view of the fact that Australia's been in the middle of a vigorous China panic with the involvement, it seems, of security agencies and media swept up in finding Chinese spies under every bed. Well, if the forthcoming legislation actually passes through uh, the Senate in Canberra, um, this book actually might uh, be banned because uh, there are clauses that specify that, that statements and publications and activities that are not in the national interest will not be tolerated. Uh, so we better get on with this interview, don't you think? Yes. Um, we're, we're doing this a week after the big announcement in China that two-term limits applying to the president, I guess other, other officials as well, if they're... But certainly to the president are going to the be vice president, yes. Um, what's the best way, from your perspective, of putting labels on this? How would you interpret this? I think there are a few things to say. It's obviously the media story of the moment, uh, Bob. Uh, one is that um, outside journalists, um, as they do with Trump in the United States, they love to concentrate on uh, the big story about the big leader. And in this, so there is an analogy, there's a, a sort of parallel with the way that journalism has, I would say, too much concentrated on Trump and his character and his tweets because it's, it's the institutions around him that uh, are really also very important to understand. They're much harder to cover uh, journalistically. The same, I think, um, uh, analogously applies to the case of China. So the spin at the moment is that we have... Um, a leader who has seized all three uh, major roles. He's head of the military commission, he's uh, state president, and he's boss of uh, the party. And there is no doubt that um, journalists, therefore, uh, want to say that this is a sign of a kind of regression in Chinese politics, that, that in fact it is um, proof negative of, uh, of, of the fact that this is an authoritarian dictatorship. I think that um, two things um, need to be said about it in addition to that parallel with the treatment of Trump. One is that this is a system, the Chinese polity, if I'm right, I try to talk about it at length in the When Trees Fall, Monkeys Scatter book. This is a polity which is multi-layered, kaleidoscopic, very complex. Um, and that, therefore, um, understanding China through the lens of the great leader uh, 
used to be called Shidada, um, is, a, is a category mistake. You need to understand um, how his leadership role uh, is connected to um, this kaleidoscopic, multi-layered uh, system. Second thing to say is, which hasn't been said in my view, uh, uh, is that the power grabbing um, is actually symptomatic of a nervousness, not only on the part of uh, Xi personally and his supporters from Zhejiang and Fujian, that group of the party, it's, it's, <coughs> it's symptomatic of a definite nervousness about power and the possibility of the loss of trust and loyalty of the population. And that is the core um, problematic, so to say, of my book. Um, the Chinese Communist Party know very well, at all levels up to Xi, that the people are rather like water, and water can float boats, but water can also overturn them. Uh, and there is um, one last thing to say. It's said that she's, uh, one of Xi's favorite jokes is a joke about Brezhnev. Uh, you know that she uh, commissioned before he rose to power a one-year commission to look at why the Soviet Union collapsed. He's deeply interested in that question, and quite a lot of what he has done um, reflects what he learned from that commission. And the joke that he likes... Uh, to tell is the, the joke about Brezhnev, who is installed as first secretary of the party, comes to the Kremlin, and so on. And shortly afterwards, his mother visits him, which is a peasant one. And she bursts into tears and says, Leonid Ilyich, I am so proud of you, my son. You live in a very big palace and you have black cars. And But Leonid, there is one thing that bothers me. It really worries me. What is it, mother? She says, what? will you say to the communists? And, and this is, you know, she, so, so this power crapping um, at the top, this attempt to announce that there's going to be stability and order is also mixed, in my view, with um, fears and anxieties about um, the decay from below uh, of popular support and what we are going to see is the continuing experiment with a lot of locally made uh, in China democratic mechanisms th whose function is to secure the loyalty and support of the party. Um, so that's not been said and that's what I, that's one of the big ideas that runs through this book. So what would be, what would be your answer to the question, democracy and China? Well, for, for American political scientists and for many journalists around the world, um, this is oxymoronic. You know, that if you speak of China, it's a straightforward case of, it's called autocracy, uh, it's called dictatorship, it's called authori uh, an authoritarian system or a system of authoritarianism. These words are used interchangeably. And it's not very well known that the, uh, this way of thinking is traceable back to Sam Huntington, uh, American political scientist who sadly is no longer with us, who was, had a great 
uh, a great ear and eye for new turns of phrase, you know, clash of civilization, the third wave of democracy. And he, um, in an essay uh, around 1970, discusses, uh, he, he discusses at length the, the whole idea of authoritarianism. And what's not remembered is that that term is twinned by him with democracy. So um, this is a concept pair. This is, uh, this is a dualism. Uh, these are twins. And for Huntington, uh, a democracy, and it has an American accent in his work, you know, it's liberal democracy, is free and fair elections. And a system of authoritarianism, uh, he uh, uh, said in that essay, has none. Therefore, uh, regimes like China, by definition, cannot be considered uh, democratic. Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, there are a number of things to be said about this Huntington distinction. One of them is that things are not going so well uh, in the heartlands of liberal democracy. Uh, and uh, we need to discuss that decay uh, of uh, liberal democratic institutions. It's happening in the United States, for example, but also in Europe. But the main, the main issue uh, for me is, uh, is the fact that, you know, empirically, descriptively, um, that distinction when applied to China misses the point that for nearly 40 years now the party has been experimenting with what they call and what locally is called by many millions of people democracy. And uh, yeah, so what we they, should probably talk about that. Yeah, what do they mean when they say that, when they use the term democracy? Because as we look at it, it's a system where elections can't result in the change of a government, mm -hmm. where there's no presidential primary in Shandong province or Guangdong province, um, where governments aren't voted out, where you don't even elect, get to elect the local mayor. So Australians, I think, would accept implicitly the Huntington notion, that that's how you judge whether a system's a democracy or not. So what are you looking at as democratic elements that the Chinese Communist Party is using and that the people recognise as being uh, democratic? It's a great question and a very complicated question. Uh, two things to say. First, by when measured by the standards of power-sharing constitutional democracy... Uh, China falls short of um, that standard, and through the book I refer to it as a phantom democracy. And this is the second point, that uh, what, what outside observers typically miss, they don't do field work, they don't speak Chinese, they don't spend any time on the ground, is the way that um, the party has invented or tolerates mechanisms that are called democratic and which to which actually millions of, of Chinese people are attached to the point where they will say when asked, for example, by outside reliable opinion um, polling agencies like the Pew, Harvard's Pew Research Project, um, the figures are usually around 80% of Chinese people say they live in a democracy. Now, is this because they're brainwashed, hoodwinked, deluded? My suggestion in this book, at length, with examples, is that uh, uh, there are things that have happened inside China that typically never happened in the Soviet Union, 
So they were they are both one-party systems. But the one-party system of China has these locally made democratic uh, qualities. For instance, the, some of them are obvious. The way that the party, at all levels, speaks the language of the people. And it says repeatedly that the people are the sovereign source of you know, authorised power in Xi's 203-minute speech to the 19th Party Congress, that's a theme that's repeated on virtually every page of, of the text. Some um, uh, mechanisms of these locally made mechanisms are less well known. Uh, more than a million local elections using the Australian secret ballot have been held since the end of the 1980s. And the for, what, for what offices? Because I, I, I was shocked when I realised they don't elect mayors in China. Correct. But um, the local party officials um, who govern, uh, for example, the village level, um, are indeed elected, and the evidence we have, the turnout is high, and the party typically wins. Occasionally it goes wrong, as in Wukan. But the evidence that we have by the anthropologists is that actually uh, um, loyalty to the local party and willingness to pay taxes to the local party rise uh, in accordance with uh, the elections that are held. And well, I would what are the positions called? Town councils or town chairmen? It's yes, and it's a governing. It's a but it's a it, it, it's a governing uh, committee that um, whose job is to effectively manage you know the the the, the, the local um, village or something slightly larger. Then there are the less well-known mechanisms. There is an estimated um, 800 opinion polling agencies in China. Half of them are independent of the party. I spent an afternoon with the oldest of those independent um, in Guangzhou, those independent um, agencies. And it was explained to me at length how the local Guangzhou party um, deals with urban problems. For example, in 2013 and 14, the local party in Guangzhou, a city of 30, 35, possibly 40 million people, big traffic problem, decide to introduce parking restrictions and they know there will be trouble. So they contact Sipor. This is the agency. And through uh, a whole um, time series of polling and the use of public forums, public assemblies, online um, petitioning and so on, they form uh, a strategy for introducing parking restrictions and do so successfully. What's interesting about these um, public opinion polling agencies is that they suppose there is a public. You know, they, they, they measure opinions. Some opinions can't be measured. You cannot ask the question inside China, you know, do you support the Communist Party of China or not? But on matters of environment or on the status of women or uh, let's say taxation policy, you can. Then um, there are much less well-known dynamics that include the toleration of what I call public opinion leaders. Um, one example, much loved by young Chinese citizens, Papi Jiao. So Papi Jiao is 29, 30. Um, she has... Um, a web platform, it was shut down and reopened quite recently. 
and it's fast cut video stuff in which she talks about um, being single as a woman in China in these early years of the 21st century and the way her parents are constantly on her back about getting married and the way her boyfriends are useless in the sense that they don't get it and, and so on and has um, <clears throat> a very large following. And what is interesting, uh, the party ticked her off during the past uh, 12 months about her foul, occasional use of foul language. So she's had to mm. retract and, and had to relaunch the web platform. But what is interesting about these public opinion leaders is that they um, command a certain public support and they are not party puppets. And sometimes they say rude things about the party. And the party calculates that, that shutting them down, arresting them, would actually uh, be a very unpopular thing. And I think this um, leads into the much bigger question. There'd be artists in that category, wouldn't there? Yes, I mean, we're, we're Westerners know Ai Weiwei yeah. is always in trouble, but, the, but there are many Chinese artists, filmmakers and so on, who are very clever at um, not only attracting large audiences, but actually saying things about, you know, the contemporary realities of, of China. And why I think this is interesting is that um, these, not only do these public opinion leaders sort of keep alive the notion that there is a public, you know, it's a phantom public, but it's a public, but, but they change the meaning of leadership. So if you read Mao, you know, the leader uh, is someone who is, um, has, has got a barrel of a gun and the fist and is tough, like she. They change the meaning of leadership to, so that leadership depends upon winning the trust and loyalty of, of people and, uh, and, of course, raising publicly issues that the party might not deal with. What about, what about the clampdown on dissident lawyers? Um, that's very disturbing. You'd like to think that someone's got the right fighting their case in court to the lawyer of their choice and the lawyers won't be persecuted. Is this something that you think might one day um, be abandoned and the, the, the regime be confident enough to face challenges in the court system? Bob, it's very complicated, this um, uh, matter of rule of law. So we know, and it's widely reported outside of China, that there are disappearances, there are arrests, there is clearly in this anti-corruption uh, drive um, championed by uh, Xi, at least 100,000 people arrested and charged. This is a, and so that it means that um, many millions of Chinese people know someone who has been you know, carted away. And this feeds the reputation of China for its lawlessness. But China is, um, Kerry Brown used to say, is a carnival. I mean, it has a kaleidoscopic quality to it. Or, may I put it in this, uh, using this example, Yu Hua, who is, I think, one of the greatest contemporary Chinese political writers. His book, China in Ten Words, is a must. Um, recently gave an interview in which he says, you know, I'm constantly asked, what is China? Well, China, he says, is a bit like this. You go into the, uh, the lobby of any hotel anywhere in China, 
one star through to five or six star. And in the lobby there will be a table, and on the table will be a no smoking sign, and next to it will be an ashtray. And this principle that you have to, you know, as an observer, as, as a citizen outside of China, pay attention to the contradictoriness of the system, applies, I think, to the question of rule of law. So, um, the examples you give of the crackdown on human rights lawyers, very clear. Um, the disappearances, the, uh, the lawlessness of all kinds of policy areas, uh, this is clear. But then you have this strange phenomenon, both at home and abroad, where there is not only lip service paid to rule of law, to fature, um, but also some practicing of it. Example, domestically, the party, for some years now, has been encouraging uh, environmental NGOs who are linked to the party to actually um, sue through the courts environmental polluters. So because there's a kind it, because of it supports the party's objective of cleaning up the air correct, and the water and, 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 and the whole politics of that is couched in terms of fa-zhe, rule of law, that these companies are violating the environmental laws that have been passed by the party. And then outside, um, Oliver Stunkel, who is, uh, I think, one of the great contemporary China scholars, has pointed out that in the last uh, two decades, China has built over 20 new multilateral institutions that are parallel, they're cross-border institutions that are parallel um, to the existing ones like the WTO and the IMF and so on. Uh, the AIIB is one of these. Um, and they are built uh, on pragmatic consent and not by treaty making, but inside these institutions, the Chinese um, follow uh, impeccably rule of law principles. So China is, you know, in matters of law, of rule of law, this is part of the phantom democracy. Yeah, and their foreign policy, just to take up that theme, is very focused on, more, more than any Western foreign policy, on the value of the Security Council and the United Nations in making law. Where their and record is actually rather uh, consistent and, and moderate. Yeah, yeah and... Um, they're far more consistent than that of the uh, United States, which will ignore the obligation to get a resolution from the Security Council when it suits them, for example, to invade Iraq in early 2003. Yeah. Um, what do you see as moving in the next 10 or 15 years? Is it possible that a, a confident middle class in China will be saying to the people polling it, we really do want to have a say in choosing our mayors and our provincial leaders. And if they can do it in, in Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, they should be able to do it in China. Um, at the very least, to start with, at the city and provincial level. Do you see that happening? And would you see a strong president, Xi or his successor, thinking, this must happen, we can't delay it any longer. Well, this would be something like a scenario where, uh, uh, followed by a uh, Congress party in India. You know, so it, it uh, 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 with independence, it becomes the dominant party, and, and for 15 years or so, it remains uh, centrally in charge of the whole governmental structures of India. 
and then for reasons that we now know about, it's eroded and, and there is some transition to a much more complicated, uh, difficult democracy. And um, something like that is going on in South Africa, I think, with the ANC. We're witnessing the breakdown and the, and the disintegration of middle class support for uh, the ANC. I think the jury is obviously out. We don't know. We don't have a Chinese crystal ball. But um, I, uh, in this book, When Trees Fall, Monkeys Scatter, <coughs> I follow the, um, the evidence and I think that it's improbable that that scenario will happen. You know, there was in the West uh, a great thesis from the 1950s which was pushed by many political scientists about um, no bourgeois, no democracy. It was even said that you know the number of refrigerators per capita was an index of the possibility of electoral democracy. Mm, mm. Well, actually, the history of middle classes shows that these middle classes are a good deal more promiscuous. It's an open question, but at the moment, the evidence that we have is that not only is the middle class expanding rapidly, at least 300 million, possibly growing soon to 400 million and maybe larger than that, which is nothing short of remarkable. But the evidence we have also suggests that they don't like um, governmental interference, party interference into matters of property and their uh, homes and, and private lives. And it may be that she will meet resistance uh, on this front. You know, when, when the party... Um, sends an instruction to associations in Hong Kong that they should goose step. Um, this is resistant because it's, it's seen as a regression to, to Mao But it's also the case that this middle class wants greater transparency, it wants greater accountability, but it's also the case, the polls show, they're not in favour of free and fair elections. So... Why? Okay, Partly that, that because... would seem to suggest that there's one Chinese interlocutor put it to me when I put to him the theory about a country becoming democratic as it becomes majority middle class, that no, on the contrary, there's a theory that um, people who are enriched, who enter middle class status, are really striking a deal with the authoritarian system and party that got them there. There is a Moshal, there is a, there is a contract, there is a silent contract. Um, you govern well, and, um, and we live well, and we will remain loyal. And remember that, uh, Bob, as, as, as I'm sure you do, that it's not only you know, election of mayors or the question of whether there can be or should be American-style you know, contested elections, whose reputation has plummeted in the last several years in China. I mean, many Chinese middle-class voices say, why would you ever want a system like that? It's poisoned with dark money and it produces demagogues of this kind. But remember that the, um, the resistance and the complaining, the belly aching, happens through social media. You know, WeChat is a very basic medium for all middle-class people. And yes, the party shows signs of wanting to interfere with it and deep mine out certain words. But it is a forum, as generally the internet is in China, for contestation of power. And partly the party, at least I say this at length in the book, the party 
um, is not just a, a, a censorious party, it also allows controversies to happen because these are early warning detector systems. These are ways of allowing people to vent. So the party is actually quite clever when it comes to the middle classes and their loyalty. Of course, the collapse of a major bank um, or some debacle um, in a military adventure somewhere in the... the Always Belgian dangerous road. for dictatorships to lose a war if you're both weak colonels or Argentinian generals. And yet, yes, these are... These are possibly future um, uh, forces that undermine the middle class's support for the party. But again, the, 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 the rule, this silent contract, is that on both sides, um, so to say, the party and the middle classes, everybody knows that if the tree falls, the monkey scatter. This is an old Chinese proverb. It's the title of the book. What it means is that the party is aware that if it loses its support, for example, among the middle classes, it will fall. And if it falls, then at least 7% of the population of China, 90 million members, but actually everybody's lives, um, will, everybody will be forced to scatter. And this would be a catastrophe for China and actually for the region. Yes, and certainly knowing their dynastic history, and Chinese leaders do know it, they're aware that empires fall, that there is a crisis of the regime at some point and uh, some bandit from the, the steppes comes in and establishes a new dynasty. They know history is cyclical. Um, John, this is fascinating. Good luck with the book. Um, thanks for being brave enough to entertain some of these heresies at a time when <coughs> the anti-China panic still stalks Australia, and um, let's talk some more. And, I hope so too. Yeah, let's see what discussion we can get going uh, with your insights into China and a concept of democracy that you say people people use and subscribe to. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you again, John. Pleasure. Our next episode will feature Lauren Johnston, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Melbourne. She'll join ACRI's Deputy Director, James Lawrenson, to discuss China's ageing population and the implications of China's changing demographics for Australia. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.